Chapter 7 The feast ended abruptly. No one having much appetite left, nor anything to add to what had been said or sung. All knew that a summons to a general thing would have to be sent through the four quarters of Iceland. But a good fortnight would pass before it could meet, and it was humanly impossible not to discuss the matter at once. So, when the guests took their leave, while expressing their thanks for the food and entertainment, they whispered from one to the other that a small house thing would be held next day at the home of Bjorn the Skald. Theobrand expected something of the sort, but he pretended not to notice the whispering, being glad they would soon start threshing the question out and reasoning their way toward where he felt they must go. With pointed tact, he retired for the night. As he made his way toward the room where he slept, someone scurried up behind him and plucked his sleeve. He turned and recognized Turker, who had crossed himself when he passed near him earlier. What is it, my son? He asked him. I am a Christian, said Turker. Look. He made sure no one was within sight or hearing, then put his hand inside his bosom and drew out a silver crucifix. Theobrand approved with a smile, then remembered that silver is a thing of value. Where did you get this? he asked. It was a ring on the finger of Thor, who stands in the temple on the hill. I took it and beat it into shape. Will you say a spell over it for me? I will say a blessing, replied Theobrand, with a little frown, and did so. Blessing or spell, Turker was pleased. He kissed it and replaced it in his blouse. Now you will believe what I will tell you, he said. What is that, my son? That I will do anything to help Olaf, said Turker. Anything. Then, with a wide sweep of his arm that meant the other thralls, we all will. Theobrand smiled benignly. You would help Olaf spread the faith? The faith? exclaimed Turker, with impatience that gave way to fury. I want these Icelanders to be slaves, to Olaf or anyone else. With that, he was gone leaving Theobrand with one more of the means that the end would justify. Faith, old and new, was discussed all through that night between bonders and their wives. In some cases, there was bitterness over one another's easy surrender or unreasoning obstinacy. Others were pleasantly surprised to find agreement where they had expected opposition whether in upholding the old beliefs or in hoping for an earldom. Eric's father spoke to Eric's mother about what they should do. He found it very difficult because he had for a long time avoided taking up with her any subject that was serious. She turned her face toward him as he started speaking without hearing what he said. Her ears were full of Theobrand's voice and the way it rose and fell. Eric, 
her husband began with an effort, then stopped. How could he explain to her how all this concerned Eric? How could he say to that dull, fatuous face, that stranger's face, that Eric was what they must talk about, that Eric was his hope, the great recompense that had replaced her, his chance to live again, in old, familiar ways that must not be changed. Since he could not, he left Eric out of it and spoke only of himself and her. He tried to make her see the threat that hung over his world and why he loved that world, even the part of it which she had once been. He tried hard, so very hard, with unaccustomed patience, to make her know at last what he was really like, so that she might stand by his side, without love if need be, but with understanding, in a great fight against any odds whatever. She was not listening. She was dreaming of that other man, who had spoken to all of them, earlier in the evening. When it was at length borne in upon her that someone was actually speaking to her, there and then, and that it was her husband, all she could think to say was that the feast had ended very suddenly, that it must have been because the guests were displeased about something, that the servants were too slow or too fast, that the meat was too cold or too hot, or too this or too that, that the wrong songs had been sung, that her husband had offended Theobrand in some way, that, oh, that whatever it was, the evening was a failure, and it would be said up and down the island that she was a bad hostess. When she reached that point, or rather just before she reached it, she broke into a fit of weeping, so that the last words could not be made out. Her husband saw the meaning coming and did not wait for it, but went out for a walk and to commune with his old friend, the night air. It was fairly dark outside, with very little moonlight, but he could have followed the familiar footpath with no light at all. By the side, he saw some white shapes and recognized them as the muslin slave clothes of a group of thralls. They were talking earnestly together, and though he could not make out the words, their voices had an excitement and exhilaration that was unusual for them. They stopped speaking when they heard his footsteps, and as he passed by, they made a great show of bowing and wishing that good luck should be with him. But he knew what they must have been saying and hoping. If slaves can lift their heads. Again, he had the sickening feeling that the bottom was dropping out of the ground. By sheer walking, he made himself a little tired. Toward morning, he went back home and slept uneasily waking several times in the belief that it was time to go to Bjorn's house. Only a dozen or so came to the house thing the next day. According to law, they did not have to come at all, because there had not been five days' notice. Those who did attend were disheartened by those who did not, feeling they must have already made up their minds what they would do. Each man present had by now the clear intention of saying either yes or no to Olaf, and they were sure that those who were absent had been thinking in the same manner and very likely reaching opposite conclusions. 
resentment, which had been felt against Olaf, turned against the absentees, and suspicion against the few who straggled in late. The afternoon was nearly over when they decided it was useless to wait longer, for they could see there would be far from a full attendance. By that time, there was a wide and angry split in the making between those who were there and those who were not, another between those there with differing opinions. When Bjorn, as host, declared the house thing opened, every man mistrusted every other, whether there or not. When Eric's father arrived, he was peculiarly alert, as one often is after too little sleep, before exhaustion comes. He saw that there were too many ways in which these men differed from one another for them to stand together on what they had in common. Here were those who would be earls in Iceland, and their sons after them. They were moving about grandly as if they already had the title. They had agreed on it with their wives. All that remained was to mouth a plausible reason and keep a good face before their friends, though they would forego that if they had to. Here were those, like himself, ready to fight. They, too, had talked it over with their wives and now acted either through zeal or fury, according to whether or not they had found agreement. He saw Bjorn's Irish slaves, doubtless as Christian as slaves anywhere, laughing furtively with their eyes at the sight of their masters at odds. He remembered those he had seen in the darkness by the side of the road. Hope was spreading among them, and grown immeasurably in one night. And between top and bottom were the free men, helpless as their fellows in Norway. All were readier to fight each other than Olaf. He heard loud talk and calm talk, true and lying talk, talk of fighting gloriously or accepting fate. He had never felt before, at anything he attended, that the talk was so useless, so plainly aimed at nothing but to give a semblance of argument, with no one really hoping to convince anyone else. He, too, had his turn, and he talked of sending out the war arrow, while the others listened with their ears but not with their eyes. At last, they reached what sounded like a decision, though it made everything meaningless that had been said. They would wait a fortnight until the general thing would meet and be bound by what happened there. This brought a great sense of relief, as if it disposed of their difficulties. There would be a great gathering, many wise men would speak, and someone would think of the right thing for them all to do. Meanwhile, no one would actually have to do anything, which is why the house thing had been such a comfort. It seemed so to all but their host of the night before. He had led the attack against Olaf, and now felt they were deserting him. As the little meeting disintegrated, he murmured, But time is short. We must do something now. He repeated the word now, to make them see it was the point, but they smiled at his impatience, thinking it grew out of his having the priest for a house guest. A few of them, who had noticed how Helga had looked at the priest, thought she was the reason. 
he did not return home as the others did. He needed sleep, but he had passed the point where he could have slept. He resented this terrible wakefulness, which was depriving him of the chance to have dreams. In a dream, he had often found the answer to a difficult problem. So, he went to a place where he could sometimes have dreams with his eyes open, to the side of the ocean. There he sat for a long time on a piece of wreckage, looking at the water, listening to it, hoping it would send him the kind of strong, helpful thought he needed. The ocean is too big. It cannot really be any man's friend, or sympathize or help him get his thoughts in order. No matter how long he may sit at its side, peering into its huge, furrowed face. The ocean has its own vast problems, which keep it troubled and seething, and which it feels it has to solve. Even the man who once thought he had married a goddess got no help from this greatest of giants. It was dusk when he called upon it by name. A jeer, a jeer, a jeer. But Ajir would not be diverted, and merely sent his nine daughters scudding to the shore, one by one, to find out what the little man wanted. They are so light-minded and wanton, that by the time they got to where he sat, they forgot their errand, and told him only that their father's hall is built of emeralds, and that if a man were to follow them to where it is strange and wonderful and deep, he would find nothing to disturb his dreams. Then each of them in turn got out of her sister's way and waited for another chance to seduce him. They kept up their steady whispering until little by little he began to listen to them, one after another, and to heed. Down there, down there, he heard them say, you can end your doubts and never know what happens on the shore. He felt his kinship with the land fading, his thoughts mingling with the water's thoughts and a yearning to yield to the persistent invitation. But twilight suddenly made way for night, at which the ocean felt no need for further disguise and became its dark, horrible, immense self, so that he saw it for the dread giant it really is and no longer dared think its thoughts. He hastily stepped back, just as one of Ajir's daughters, bolder and more abandoned than her sisters, threw herself on the ground where he had been sitting. He shuddered at the doom which had so nearly beguiled him. He belonged to the land, and the land to him. Why should he take himself out of the way? Why not do something against his foes? Something mighty, something berserk. Something with a sword. A sword. A sword and something to split with it. Why had the ocean not said that? Was there something that a sword could not subdue? Was the knight hurrying in so as to hide it from him? Again he scanned the blackening waters for an omen. The foam and shadows only told him what he was deeply telling himself. They said, you know you know. He turned and walked away, 
rapidly, trying as much not to hear as to hear. But he stopped as the ocean suddenly called after him the name Olaf. Beyond any doubt, the name had been said, clearly, and clearly heard. It may even be that he and the ocean said it together, since they thought of it together. That was why the ocean had not called for swords. It was Olaf against whom swords were helpless. But only fate was stronger than a sword. Then was fate on Olaf's side? Yes, of course. Long before he listened to the priest's tale, he had been hearing from the crews of many ships how Olaf did this, or Olaf decreed that, or Olaf the king commanded thus and such. Until now, skimming the cream off his memories as they rushed past him, the names shone forth together. Olaf and Fate. Fate and Olaf. Not only Olaf. Not only Olaf's new god. Fate was upon them. That had been his dim foreboding since the first ships arrived with the news. What else could make sea kings look like that? and put surrender in their faces. They were so quiet, so passive about the coming change. They sent out no war call, as against any other invader. It is only fate that thus numbs the sword arm and lulls the will. He himself, how readily he accepted the king's priest as a guest. King? Olaf was not his king, whatever he was in Norway. Yet he was naming him so, the king. And he had let the priest talk him down before his wife, before his son, as if the curse of helplessness lay on his own tongue. Olaf. The waves went on shouting to him and to each other. Olaf. 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 Until he, who had just been so nearly one with them that he had learned a little of their language, began to understand why they were so certain, so insistent, why they kept repeating that the world could not prevent what Olaf meant to do. Olaf the All-Powerful. Olaf the Spear-Breaker. Olaf the Doom. He thanked Ajir, threw him a golden ring for his treasure chest, inhaled deeply of his salty breath, and walked on. Considering his newfound fact and the way it changed everything. If the battle was already decided, deep in the brain of time, it was best to know it. Fate takes many forms and has a monstrous pleasure in seizing you unaware. A man is just the least bit better off who can recognize it when it comes. Then he has a better chance of doing whatever can still be done, of saving what can still be saved. He needed a plan, one that was not already written down to be thwarted. He must consult with friends beyond suspicion, who had no hope of gain or fear of loss, who loved him and who would advise him what he should do, what he must do what he could do if they told him, without pausing or thinking. He had two such friends, and they were both dead 
his great-grandfather Ingolf, who was the first to settle here, and his father Eric, who had told him of it. From the dead, he would get the advice he needed. It was the end of their world, too, that was threatened. They would find that far more awesome than their own life's end had been, and no amount of glory with Odin in Valhall could pay for it. It is to Earth that the dead cling most tightly, and they want the Earth likewise to cling to them. The true solace of dying is to know that familiar things will remain, that familiar people will remember, and perhaps make a song about the things you and they believed in common. A ghost, hearing such a song, may return and feel at home. That cannot be if there is nothing familiar to return to. If memory no longer cares about such as you or your gods, he walked toward the buried ship that was Ingolf's tomb. Not directly to the tomb. First to the temple of Thor on the hill which overlooked it. They say a dead man sometimes changes from what he was in life. A visit to the god would be a safeguard. The wooden image of Thor, which many years ago had floated to the spot where he wanted Ingolf to land, still stood in the temple of the hill. The remains of an altar fire glowed before him through the night, making his greased face gleam out of the darkness at Ingolf's descendant, who came in to tell Thor what was afoot and ask whether he might borrow some light from the altar. It is very dark in a tomb, he explained to Thor, even an ancestor's tomb and no ghost likes to be awakened. Light and the god's approval would lend him courage. He touched a pine torch to the embers and was gratified when Thor allowed the flame to catch. Holding the burning branch above his head, he promised Thor an ox and went on his way down the hill toward the buried ship. The torch made a wide, bright circle around whose rim danced shadows which really might not have been shadows at all, but something else waiting to close in if the light should happen to go out. The nearer he came to the ship tomb, the greater grew his fears and the greater the courage with which he conquered them. It is hard to understand such courage and such fear. He was braving things he believed in, have you ever heard the story of Hervod? Well, he had. When the great earthen mound that covered the ship and its master loomed against the stars, he stopped suddenly where he was, despite courage, torch, and Thor. On its top he saw, not the unexpected, but ever so much more terrible, something he had told himself he would have to see. What is sudden fright compared to a nightmare come true? Pale, bluish ghost lights flickered on the mound, waiting for him, expecting him, watching him. He had summoned them, and there they were, to take part in the tomb thing, all of them and himself. 
cowardly thoughts rushed into his mind and seized him from within. Go back. Be with living men. Say yes to Olaf and his priest. So many were going to. Were they right? At least they were safe. They did not have to face this. What was shame? Be safe, be safe. Fling your torch at the ghosts, scream and run. But from out of the deepest, oldest part of his memory arose the echo of a story. He had heard it as a very little boy, along with the stories of the four dwarfs who hold up the sky, the deeds of the hero Hjalmar, and all the other lore around which his little bones and flesh had wrapped themselves. This was the story about Odin, about how the father of the gods obtained wisdom and the price he paid for it. His father has told it to him. It seemed to him now, as always, that his father and Odin looked alike. Wisdom lay at the bottom of a well. What price will you pay for it? asked Mimir, the well keeper. Any and all, said Odin. Then any and all it shall be. Mimir answered him. He plucked out one of Odin's eyes, stabbed him with a spear, and hanged him to a tree. Nine days and nights the god hung there, suffering as none have suffered since, to learn how to rule us here on earth and hereafter in Valhall. Nine days and nights hung Odin there, upon the dreadful tree, to learn the ruins of earth and air and sky and flame and sea. A spear within his heart was thrust, and half his sight he gave, to learn how men, when turned to dust, may live beyond the grave. Say a prayer to Odin on the battlefield. Drink a toast to Odin at the feast. Never desert him. No, never, he cried and the ghosts could hear him if they would. Odin against Christ, let my son be proud of me. He ran, but toward the mound, not from it. The stone entrance had long since fallen in, but thieves had made another through the earthen side and shored it up with wood. Through this he made his way, clutching his pine torch and having to crouch somewhat because the opening was low. He straightened up when he reached the inner chamber and for a moment believed he was still outside because he was conscious of stars above his head. Then he saw that they were not spread over the whole sky, but only here and there, and he knew that small animals had dug holes from above, both through the great shed that was built above the ship and the thick layer of earth and stones that was laid upon it. This bit of reasoning led to more, leaving no room in his head for his fears, which raged in the air around him, looking for somewhere to roost. He looked about carefully and thoroughly, as he always did when he found himself in any sort of unexpected place. Also by habit, he took stock of himself, making sure that his sword was not jammed in its sheath, nor his belt unbuckled. His teeth were chattering, not from fear. 
he knew what it was from. It was the cold, the piercing, gnawing cold, which had not been tempered by the sun in a hundred years. There is nothing so cold as a grave. His torchlight showed him that he was standing outside the hull of the ship. Whoever had made the opening in the side of the mound had broken through this as well. He walked to the inside of the vessel and found that there, too, he was standing on ground. The keel had rotted away in the hundred years it had lain against the earth, and only the sides were standing. The only other wood that remained in place was the great shed above. Its beams were unusually thick and must have been overlaid with stones before the dirt was thrown on, or they would surely have rotted as the keel had. The ship was not an overly long one, a carfi, with seats for twenty rowers. It was pointed toward the sea, which could be heard roaring, even here. He walked toward the prow, and there his feet trod on some moldering wooden planks that could not be part of the sides, because they lay below where the forecastle must have stood. He stopped, wondering why these planks alone could have lain in the open earth so long and not have decayed utterly. No one could have brought them there for any purpose whatever. They must have been part of the ship. After a little thought, he reasoned it out. Here, near the prow, the forecastle had stood. The deck, above which it rose, collapsed first and lay between earth and forecastle. This was an exciting thought, for if it were so, then Ingolf's dust must lie precisely here. Those who were buried with their ships were always placed in the forecastle, seated and in their full armor. He searched about in the rubble for that armor, holding his torch this way and that so the glint of metal would show. Any fear was now as far from his mind as if he had never known it. Only one passion at a time can possess a man, and his was the zeal of the quest. He was the reasoner, the searcher, the Viking who explored. A small plank broke in two as he stepped on it. The ends fell inward and struck something which rang metallically. He kicked the plank away. Was it armor? It did not shine. Why no, how could it? It was covered with rust. What was it? A shield? A helmet? He picked it up and held the flame near. It was a helmet, made of bronze. The workmanship was very rich. Despite the corrosion, he could make out handsome silver chasing. He looked away from it to the place where it had been lying. Had there been a skull under it? Ingolf's? He bent down to look closely. And then, something rushed at him from a shadow and put out the torch. Now this is a strange thing. He had come here for the most important deed of his life, his greatest act, his greatest decision, his greatest heroism. He knew how much depended on it and had all his faculties alert. He saw, heard, 
observed more keenly than ever in his life. Then, for just a moment, a shock upset the balance, and the importance, which had urged him to be aware, became his enemy and overwhelmed his eyes and ears, so that afterward he was never sure what he had seen or heard, or how or when, or whether it was real. Here is what Ingolf's great-grandson believed had happened when he told it later. He screamed when the torch went out, the deep chest scream of a man dreaming hideously. He did not know what had brushed the torch from his hand, whether animal, demon, or ghost, and did not dare to try to find out. He shrank to the ground and huddled there, covering his face with his arm so as not to see. It was dark, so he could not have seen anyway, but he dreaded that he somehow might. His teeth still chattered, and now not only from the cold. He wished they would stop. He has said that it was not that he was afraid, it was his teeth. They seemed so frightened that fear had come leaping back into him, through them. Though his arm and the blackness kept him from seeing, he began to hear. There was a sound as of something moving about. At first, he thought it was made by whatever had struck out the torch. Then, it seemed rather to be made by many things, than by many men. And the sound they made, as they moved, was familiar. It was the awkward, shuffling tread of men who are carrying heavy loads aboard a ship. Then he heard two men together, carrying something unusually heavy and panting from the effort. After that, there was no longer any mistaking the sound. A man shouted orders, the same that every ship's captain gives when leaving port. He remembered hearing those orders given by his father, the first time they sailed together, and by many captains since. Then, out of all the sounds that he was hearing, or remembering, one voice arose, singing a song that sailors have when the ocean has called them and they cast off. It mingled with the splashing of waves and oars creaking against their locks. He knew the song, knew its every rise and fall. Everyone who sailed the North Sea knew it. I know an old man. He has nine daughters. A wife named Ran and he rules the waters. I hear him call, and I cannot stay. Away! Far back on land, where trees are shady, while hand in hand with you, my lady, I thought of the wind and the flying spray. Away! Your hair was gold, your eyes were starry, the wind is cold, and now I'm sorry. I'm going to live on the land someday. Away, away! He was never able to recall why and when he uncovered his eyes. All he could swear to that was, presently they were open, seeing what was taking place about him, and it was the very same that he had been imagining when he had only the sounds to go by. There was no change which could make him notice that his eyes were open, 
or to remind him that they'd not been. For one thing, he was not surprised to find he was no longer in the grave at night, but on the open sea in brilliant daylight. He had known that from the first, as he had known that the ship had become as strong and seaworthy as when it was put into the ground. The mast was raised, the sail bellied against the bright sky, the men bent strongly to their oars, and they were swiftly drawing away from land, which he knew was Norway. Two other ships followed, raising their masts into place as this one had done, and taking the course it set. And above, at the window of the forecastle, was Ingolf, his graying hair falling below his bronze helmet, whose silver chasing gleamed in the sunlight. The ghost of the first settler did not look down at the deck, even when his great-grandson found his voice and dared to call him by name, but stared out to sea with an obstinate fixity that nothing could shake. The crew, too, possessed by the same grim singleness of thought as their commander, were intent upon their oars and where they were heading, giving no sign that a visitant from another day was aboard, though he walked the length of the ship and back, telling them who he was and that he had come for their guidance and help against their great common doom. They gave him no answer. There was none they could give, nor could they see or hear him, for he was as unalive to them as they to him. These men were those who dwelt here before, a hundred years before. The song came back to him, which with he had taunted Theobrand. Ingolf, who was the first settler, because he would not be ruled in Norway by King Harald Fairhair. Here it was, that famous, stubborn journey to Iceland for him to see, and concealed in it somehow the answer to his question, how he and his son should meet fate. The sun went down behind the horizon as he looked at it, then magically up again on the other side, three times thus, and the journey was done. And there lay the shore of Iceland, less than a mile off their bow, with its distant mountains rising to offer an austere welcome. They brought Thor up on deck to behold his new home. He stared at it steadily, looking the same in every way as when he lent the fire in the temple. They lowered him over the side, dropped him into the waves and crowded to the rail to see which landing place he would choose. Because of his great weight, he went almost full length underwater, then bobbed back into the air, fell on his back with a splash, floated for a moment while he made up his mind, and at last found a current to take him where he wanted to go. Ingolf spoke to his crew. Thor is finding what we seek, he said, a new place for our old ways. The men yelled for joy and shouted insults back across the ocean toward Harold Fairhair in Norway. Ingolf let them vent their feelings for a moment, then gave a sharp order. 
Instantly, the men went back to their oars and rowed after Thor toward land. The journey would soon be done. The man who was aboard with them, whom they could not see, knew he must get an answer to his query, now, before they landed, or the chance would be gone. He must make them hear him. Calling upon all his strength, he shouted loudly enough, as the saying goes, to wake the dead. What shall we do? He screamed. My son and I, what shall we do? Ingolf, who was going back into the forecastle, turned and looked at the place where his great-grandson stood, although he did not see him and was looking through him into the distance. Let those who come later, he said solemnly, repay this debt to Thor. When he had said that, all the crew rested on their oars and looked in the direction he was looking, through the man who had come with them on the trip, to the horizon behind which the future hides. They were giving him his answer, all the answer he would get. Its meaning was deep and hidden, and he would have to think it out, like the riddles that Odin was fond of asking and answering. Then, very swiftly, the light began to fade, as when the sun sinks behind a hill. He tried, with all the power of his will, to go on seeing Ingolf and his crew, but suddenly everything was dark, and the ship was back in its grave, under the mound, running away as it had for a hundred years. The darkness was no longer as black as when his torch went out. Overhead, through the little holes the animals had made, and at the side through the thieves' tunnel, bits of early morning light began to seep in. Ingolf's great-grandson groped about on the ground for the rusted helmet. As his eyes grew used to the graying light, he found it. He took it with him, out through the tunnel. He meant to wear it on a certain sea voyage he had decided to make. He knew how the debt to Thor could be repaid. 